welcome to Truth in Life podcast. We discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. Hello and welcome. You're watching Truth in Life podcast where we discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. If you were to ask any New Testament scholar what topic was most central to the teaching of Jesus, they will unhesitantly say it is the kingdom of god the theme of the kingdom of god is a very broad and complex theme as you would expect it has generated a lot of discussion among new testament scholars and to talk about this profound and intriguing topic i have one of the foremost new testament scholars as my guest tonight he's been on this podcast before and needs no introduction and so without further ado it's my joy and privilege to welcome Dr. Darrell Bock from Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Bock, welcome to our podcast. It's a great privilege and an honor to have you here. Well, it's great, it's great to be back with you again, Ravanth, and we're looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Dr. Bock, uh, getting into the topic for our discussion for tonight. The phrase, the kingdom of God, does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, but the Hebrew scriptures do talk about a concept like that and also present a hope as well about the kingdom of God. Could you please explain to our audience what antecedents to the to the theme do we have in the Hebrew scriptures? Well, the main antecedent is the idea that God is the ruler and then the way in which that phrase gets used in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament is uh, related to uh, really how we're thinking about God because there are all kinds of texts in the Psalter they talk about God ruling, God ruling over the nations, etc. Mm -hmm. That discuss the sovereignty of God, the power of God, that kind of thing, the rule of God in the world. But that rule, as something that exists in the Old Testament, is a picture of God's role as Creator. When we talk about the kingdom of God in the New Testament, we're talking about something that hasn't come yet, something that isn't that doesn't exist until Jesus shows up. And in that context, we're talking about the rule of God in his context as redeemer, as the person who is reclaiming that which has been lost in the world. And so we have to distinguish the way in which the rule of God is portrayed in the Old Testament with this creator, creator creature theme. And the idea of the kingdom of God is something that has been promised that God is delivering and that he's delivering in order to bring salvation, redemption, deliverance, whatever word you want to attach to it. And that represents the rule of God in restoration, basically, in which God is in the business of restoring a fallen creation into the place where it one day will be uh, at the end. And so, so the kingdom is an open-ended concept. It's a concept that not only is related to promise, which is, begins to be realized with Jesus' coming in a kind of what we call the already form. And then there's the not yet part of the consummation which is the culmination of that promise, which comes about when Jesus returns. So there's an already not yet element to the kingdom of God in the New Testament coming out of the idea of a promised rule of God and restoration. And there also is another way to think about it is, is that the kingdom is inaugurated on the one hand, but it will be consummated in the end. Okay, great, Dr. Bock. Uh, going back to specifically the concept of the kingdom of God, or at least the concept of it and the hope of it in the Old Testament, expanding on it a little bit, Dr. Bock, uh, 
you've said that uh, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is king. He is the creator God. But is there a specific relation that he has with the nation of Israel, Dr. Bok? Well, yes, there certainly is a, a relationship. That's where the promise resides. That's where the hope of the promise resides. They are the initial people through whom he tries to work in showing his rule over a special people. But the lesson of the Old Testament is you can have a great ruler, you can have great laws, but if you don't have changed hearts, you still have a mess. And so you get the new covenant as part of that promise in Jeremiah, in which God says, I'm going to put my law within you. I'm going to put the spirit. Ezekiel says it this way. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And so mm -hmm. when God does an inside out work, you know, that really is the presence of the kingdom of God. And the New Testament takes that concept and talks about being born again or born from above. Uh, that is the realization of that promise. All right. So in John's gospel, to have eternal life is to enter the kingdom, isn't it? That's right. It's to ha enter the kingdom. It's to have been born from above. It's to receive the spirit of God as a result of having been forgiven for sin because you've sought that forgiveness. Really, eternal life in the New Testament is basically two things. Uh, it, is, it is the forgiveness of sins, which allows you to be washed or cleansed, if you want to think Jewishly for a second. And then because you have been cleansed through that forgiveness, now the Spirit of God can indwell a cleansed vessel, is the picture that we have. And so that's why New Testament believers are called saints. They're set apart to God because they've been sanctified made holy, set it apart, made clean as a result of the work of Jesus. And that's the core of the gospel, is the opportunity to be reconnected to the living God through the forgiveness that Jesus offers and through the enablement he gives through the Spirit to work with, uh, in us from within so that we can be the men and women of God that we're called to be and the community of God's people can be what they're called to be. Right. Great. So, Dr. Bach, when we look at the Old Testament, and again, going back to the concept in the Old Testament, uh, you've mentioned and explained very clearly that Yahweh is king and he is king over creation and he is king over Israel as well. Uh, but Dr. Bach, uh, we also see that Yahweh is reigning from Zion through the Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, where is the role of the Messiah in this concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, Dr. Bach? Well, the picture is, is that God will rule through the Messiah from Zion eventually. That's the picture. But there's something else that's going on in relationship to the Hebrew scripture that's very important. When this picture of consummation and promise is presented, which ultimately looks at the deliverance that comes through the Messiah to the world, through the Messiah, and eventually in relationship to Israel, that hope actually gets split into two parts. And so in the New Testament, so that you get Jesus coming to redeem the people on the one hand and to provide the sacrifice for the people on the one hand. So that's the, the suffering part of the Messiahship. And then he rules and will rule and eventually rule present on the earth from Israel, from Zion. But that's part of the consummation. So this inauguration consummation concept that I talked about earlier really is split into two parts. And the anticipation had been that it would all happen together. But the mystery of the kingdom in the New Testament is the splitting of these two things apart with the church then occupying that between space between right. the beginning of the arrival of the kingdom and the actual consummation. And so the Old Testament is anticipating 
again, the consummation, the totality of that deliverance, but it did not anticipate the fact that this was going to come basically in two separated movements with something in between. Right. So what the Old Testament offers as a package, the New Testament is unraveling for us and you have two comings there. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bok, again, stressing on this a little bit for the sake of our audience, because I have a, I've got a lot of questions from our audience and uh, several other people who write to me about this. Um, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we always talk about it in relation to Jesus. And you rightly mentioned that, Dr. Bok, and you've written a lot about this. Uh, but what about uh, David and Solomon uh, and the other Davidic kings uh, who were also known as Messiahs with small m? They were also called sons of God in that Davidic covenant relationship with Yahweh. So where is their role in the, the kingdom of God? Well, what you have is the hope that any king of Israel would be the one who would bring this deliverance. Mm -hmm. So there's a role, there's an ideal role that is defined for the king, which is vice regent of God, uh, son of God, is sometimes the language used. He's certainly right. anointed, a king gets anointed, mm -hmm. that's where the word Christ comes from. But eventually, the idea of the Christ, is the, it becomes the idea of the decisive deliverer. So not just someone who we hope will deliver, but someone who actually does it. And so that's the difference. And so David and the line of Solomon, the Davidic house, the Davidic covenant is, I'm going to rule through this dynasty. I'm going to deliver through this dynasty. Eventually deliverance will come through this dynasty. And so David and Solomon are the precursors and kind of the ancestors to this promise who hold it. And it's held in the line of David, which then Jesus becomes a part of. Because remember in the New Testament, he's often described as the son of David. And so this is another way to make the point. He's in the regal promise line of the deliverer. He's qualified to bring this deliverance. In fact, I love the way the New Testament begins, at least in our Bibles. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Exactly. Uh, right. Uh, that's a very interesting and a compelling thought that you presented, Dr. Bach. Uh, so that's the Old Testament part of it. Uh, you have the anticipation of the deliverer who's going to come. Uh, but moving on to the next period of history in the history of Israel, Dr. Bach, uh, the second temple Jewish period. What about the concept there and the hope that we're seeing? Well, what you have in the, in, in the second temple period or what's often called the intertestamental period, they're referred to, they refer to the same thing. This is the period from the end of the Old Testament, to the beginning of the New and the way in which Judaism is trying to put this picture together. And they really had a variety of ways to think about this messianic figure. Um, one is to think of a figure who, the way I like to describe it, crashes the party from outside, okay? He comes from heaven to earth. Uh, the picture of Daniel 7, the figure who rides a clouds to receive judgment authority Solomon. and riding a cloud as a transcendent figure. Um, that's one expectation. That gets reaffirmed in a work like First Enoch, the similitudes, mm -hmm. which is not a biblical text, but it's a reflection on what the Jews expected. And this was this powerful figure who's pre-existent, who sits with God, who shares in the judgment, you know, a lot of the characteristics that we see in the New Testament. Another right. variation of this is the idea that he's a king that emerges from within Israel as a as a human figure, it isn't so much that he crashes from beyond as he mm -hmm. is he emerges from within the nation. 
This portrait we see in the Psalms of Solomon, chapters 17 and 18, where there is discussion about this delivering figure who will be a mighty figure, who will not only defeat the nations, but he will purge and bring righteousness uh, to Israel at the same time. And so both of these portraits share one fundamental thing, and that is the Messiah is seen fundamentally as a powerful, conquering, delivering figure. What they don't have in this portrait, and what you don't see, generally speaking, in Second Temple Judaism, is any idea that the Messiah would suffer, despite a text like Isaiah 53, despite right. the images that you get in a text like Psalm 118, which talks about the stone, which was the chief cornerstone, has been rejected, but it's become the chief cornerstone. Not passages like that. In fact, Psalm 118 in the Gospels is cited more to talk about Jesus' suffering than Isaiah 53 is, which surprises right. some people. And so so this they didn't have the suffering picture. They didn't have, if I can say it this way, they didn't have part one. Okay, They only had part two, which is, uh, I guess, somewhat humanly natural. You know, we want to think about where it all ends up and what the victory is, etc. But we don't want to go through the path to get there necessarily always. And so what you see is that you get your suffering first and then your exaltation. But the, the Jewish expectation in this intermediate period was of a powerful figure. And Jesus had to deal with that in his ministry, which is why he was a little bit hesitant to talk publicly about being the Messiah, was because they had a certain expectation of what that figure was going to be that isn't like uh, the Messiah he came to be. And so until... The disciples understood this, and until he was ready to kind of press the issue, he was basically uh, hesitant to say much about his kingship in public. Very interesting, Dr. Bock. So, Dr. Bock, uh, when we read uh, the writings of Second Temple Judaism, do you have the concept of Messiah always associated with the concept of the kingdom of God? Um, well, that's... A, that's uh, the the issue of the phrase kingdom of god is is all is almost as rare in the idea of second temple mm -hmm. judaism as it is in the old testament but what you right. do have here's what the association that you get is the messiah is tied to the eschaton to it's tied to mm -hmm. the time of deliverance and the and the eschaton is a time of deliverance okay right. so you don't so you don't quite connect those dots explicitly although it's clear that the messianic figure in 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 the in the psalms of solomon and in daniel and in the first enoch text that we talked about these are clearly talking about the times of deliverance they just don't often use the kingdom of god language to get there now daniel's close because daniel speaks of a kingdom that's not made with human hands mm -hmm. okay which is a way of talking about the kingdom of god without using the phrase kingdom of god Right. So the concept is certainly there, even though sometimes the expression isn't. Great. So Dr. Bock, uh, just uh, emphasizing this point a little bit by uh, reiterating it, uh, what you said. So in the Second Temple Jewish period, there was this hope, and the hope was kind of split into two. Uh, you, had, you had the hope of this current world being remade or regenerated, where you had the Messiah, an earthly figure who would rise up. For example, a text like Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, and then uh, he would uh, deliver 
Israel by conquering the enemies and there'll be an age of righteousness and peace. So that's one aspect of it. Then you have the other aspect of it, like you said, uh, you have uh, an extraterrestrial figure, somebody from outside breaking into history, somebody like the son of man of Daniel 7. And uh, he will bring uh, a new world that is going to come. Is that is that what, a right summary of it? Yeah, the Daniel 7 passage stresses the idea he's been given judgment authority. So he comes to vindicate the saints, to establish right. righteousness in effect, and to judge unrighteousness and to remove evil. So that's the picture. Really, when you get the kingdom of God in its most basic sense, the thing that it is it represents is the defeat of evil and the vindication mm -hmm. of the saints. So um, another passage that's important in this in terms of background about the period is the picture of the kingdom of God in the Assumption of Moses, chapter 10. Now, I'm not having my devotions in these texts, but they're, <laughs> they're out there. And uh, the picture there is of uh, of Satan being defeated by the presence of Jesus, which is which are like certain texts that you see in the New Testament, because when Jesus is performing exorcisms and explaining his miracles, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, or if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, it's spirit in Matthew and it's uh, finger of God in Luke, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this right. idea that Satan is being defeated, that evil is being dealt with, is a, a, a core picture of what the kingdom of God is about as an expectation uh, when, you to, when you talk about what it is that the kingdom of God is going to deliver. Right. So during the time of Jesus, uh, the defeat of evil would often be seen as the defeat of Rome, right? Well, I think the disciples would have thought of it that way because you do have a lot of Old Testament texts that talk about God coming to judge the nations, particularly the unbelieving nations or the nations that believe in idolatry, that kind of thing. So the natural way that would have been read would have, well, of course, if, you know, Rome is, Rome has idols, Rome is not, you know, they don't believe in the God of Israel, etc. So naturally, they are the opponent. But what Jesus does again in his ministry is he redirects the attention. He says, no, the real battle is a spiritual battle. The real battle is a battle with the presence of Satan. And what you see on earth is a reflection of those spiritual realities. And the real battle and the real enemy is there, which is why God needs to engage us directly and from the inside, because the challenge is a spiritual one. Wonderful. So, Dr. Bok, uh when we look at Second Temple Jewish period, uh, it was not one monolithic Jewish faith. Uh, and you've written a lot about this, and I've read your writings on this. Uh, it's Judaisms, isn't it? They were the Pharisees, they were the Sadducees, they were the Essenes, etc., etc. So, uh, with a variety of hopes and understandings of what the kingdom of God is and the concept of it, uh, do you think Jesus had a big challenge on his hand when he spoke, "The kingdom of God is at hand"? Well. People would have known basically what that idea was. The question would be whether they believed that it was going to come in kinds of ways that Jesus would talk about. So let's talk about the Sadducees for a second. The Sadducees were, were, were naturalists, would be the simple way to say it. They believed in the Pentateuch. They tried to follow the law. But they didn't really believe in the eschaton in a significant kind of way. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't right. believe in angels. Okay, so the kingdom of God would be, uh, at least in the way Jesus defined it, would almost be meaningless to them. Uh, it, would, it would be, you know, for them, the kingdom of God was just to be faithful to God in relationship to the law and to try and manage this world the best you can. 
Uh, mm -hmm. The Pharisees would have been, you know, would have had this kind of hope. Um, the, the Essenes who lived at Qumran in the Dead Sea community also would have had this kind of hope. The Zealots would have seen the enemy, uh, would have seen Rome as the enemy. So they, Political. Uh, uh, Messiah, who is speaking in spiritual terms and isn't dealing with Rome, they would be saying he's not doing enough. So yes, in the, in the totality of the Jewish audience, you've got a variety of people who have a variety of expectations and uh, really none of them in one sense match what it is that Jesus is bringing because none of them are anticipating the suffering. None of them right. are anticipating that they as a people also have a spiritual need that Jesus is gonna die for and that he's gonna die for their sins. So that part of them catches somewhat by surprise. Although if you're a good Jew and you have the foreign nations in your land and you're reading Deuteronomy, okay, then you're thinking, well, the reason the nations are here is because we are not a righteous people and we're being judged, right. which would suggest the need to repent and to turn to God because of the circumstances you find yourselves in. But they would be expecting the enemy to be a human enemy when, it, when of course, the enemy is far more profound and far less visible. Great. So, Dr. Bock, uh, you've talked about the hope that uh, people had in Second Temple Jewish period, like uh, an earthly messiah, a son of man figure. So did Jesus preach that this current world would be reorganized or did he preach that a completely remade new world would come or both? The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, it's both. <laughs> um, uh, on the one hand, he's going to reclaim this world in the form and frame in which it currently exists. That's what the millennium is about, the thousand year rule that Jesus comes back to bring. But then in the end, he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. So he, the, so the creation with this cre with this creation wrapped up and consummated in the way that it ought to have ended, he's then going to move us into an eternity and a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to get a reconfiguration on the one hand, and then a complete renewal on the other. And both hope, both, both aspects of are a part of that hope. Great. So Jesus did preach this current world remade or reorganized. And he also preached a completely uh, remade new world that is going to come as well, and both in their appropriate time. Uh, to, I mean, to the extent that Jesus talked about the future beyond the idea of victory. I mean, the, the, most of the detail that we have about how this works itself out is actually in the epistolary material and in Revelation, as opposed mm -hmm. to being a part of Jesus' teaching ministry. The main thing that Jesus emphasized about, about the returning consummation is there would be a victory, the righteous would be vindicated, evil would be eradicated, uh, evil would be judged, you know, and, and basically um, that's all he talked about. Uh, he didn't fill out the details, but the details come to us from Paul's epistles and from Revelation. Right. Uh, so Dr. Bock, uh, coming to a very important topic here and switching gears. Um, is there a future for Israel in the teaching of Jesus? I think so. I think there's a future for Israel. Uh, I think that Jesus has a couple of passages where he says in Luke 13, 34 and 35, and then there's the parallel in Matthew 23, Matthew 37 23, to yeah. 39. Yeah, that says... Um, he declares Israel's house desolate because they're rejecting the Messiah that God has sent. But he says, your house is desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Language of Psalm 118 again. 
different passage from the cornerstone passage. And so, um, and so he is suggesting that there, that Israel is set to the side in the plan of God until they recognize the Messiah. And he's holding out the hope that that's going to happen. Then in the, uh, then in the Luke conversion of the Olivet discourse, which is in Luke 21, 20 to 24, there's a talks about Jerusalem being trampled down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, in scripture, the contrast to the times of the Gentiles, the opposite of Gentiles in terms of peoples are Jews. So there's the time in which the Gentiles are at the center of what's going on. And then that suggests there's going to be a time when the Jews are back in the equation. So much so that in Acts 1, 6, the disciples, having spent 40 days with Jesus, having heard him expound the Old Testament and the fulfillment, ask, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't answer the question with a yes or no. He says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that are that are basically the Father's business. And so he doesn't he doesn't say the question's a wrong question. He simply says, it's none of your business. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. this is your mission. You know, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. And then in chapter 3, Peter says, and he asked about Jesus' teaching, but what Peter learned from Jesus is important. Peter says in Acts chapter 3 that heaven must hold Jesus until the times of refreshing come. And then it right. talks about the, the era of restoration, which you can read about in the prophets. So Peter says, if you want to know the rest of the story and what the rest of the story looks like, read your, what we would call the Old Testament, read your Hebrew scripture. And so, um, so all these texts together have a very central role for Israel as the um, locus point for the reconciliation and deliverance that God will bring. So this is not, this is important, this is not a nationalism that we're talking mm -hmm. about. This is not I right. Israel at the expense of the nations. This is Israel as the base from which um, uh, the world will recognize the presence and power of God. Amazing. Uh, so, Dr. Bach, uh, going back to uh, what you talked about as the until passages, and I love the way you describe them as until passages in your writings. Uh, again, would you, would you take us through those three passages that you talk about, Dr. Bach? Well, again, Luke 13, 34, and 35, which is paralleled in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, says... You know, first the language comes out of uh, it's an exilic-like judgment on the nation for having being covenantally unfaithful. They've rejected the Messiah that God has sent. So your house is said to be desolate. But then part mm -hmm. two of that promise is until you say, blessed is he who comes Blessings. in the name of the Lord. So it's looking to a time in which although Israel has her back turned now, her back will turn back around and she will recognize her Messiah. So that's the first right. passage. The second passage so Dr. is... Bok uh-huh just just Go just ahead. a question here dr Bok. so you're saying that this passage is saying that there will be a time in the future when israel will nationally repent and recognize the messiah and say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord yeah and i'll connect it to a passage in paul when i get through all three of these texts then the second text is the olivet discourse text in luke which talks about jerusalem being trampled down and by the nations until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled, which is, which right. again is a picture of judgment on the one hand, but it's looking forward to a hope for Israel on the other, because on the other side of the times of the Gentiles will be the time when the Jews I come back the Jews. into the picture. 
And then the third text is this is this Acts 3 text where Peter talks about the times of restoration that you can read about in the prophets where Israel is in the center of the story. Now all this connects with Romans 9 to 11 where Paul is lamenting the fact that his own brethren do not believe. And we know this can't be new Israel or Gentiles because he basically says he's weeping on behalf of his brethren and he wish he could sacrifice himself you know, right. so that they would believe at the very beginning. And then at the end, it's also clear that we're still talking about Israel because the picture at the end is of original branches that have been cut away and wild branches have been grafted in. That pictures the Gentiles. And the passage goes on to talk about if wild branches can be grafted in, it's not going to be a hard thing to graft the natural branches back in. Back and then in, it talks yeah. about all Israel being saved. So that has to be, that has to be national Israel. That has to be uh, Jewish believers coming back to faith and coming back to faith in mass because in chapter 10, he's talked about the fact there's always a remnant, okay? So there are a group of, a small group of Jews who believe and there always will be. But one day that remnant will grow and expand and become basically the nation. Now that's not every single solitary Jew, I don't think, but it is a mass of Jews from the nation, so much so that we can say the nation has responded. Great. So in the future, there'll be many more Jews who will respond to Jesus Christ than uh, the number that has already responded. Correct. That's basically what that's saying. And, and, and in such mass, like I say, that we can say the nation of Israel has responded to her Messiah. Wonderful. Uh, great. So, uh, Dr. Bock, uh, one question that I get usually asked, and I'm sure uh, you will take some time to clarify this, is that the church consists of people from all across the world, every nation, every tribe, uh, every tongue, and all of that, including the Jews. Uh, why does the Old Testament hope, and also, again, the New Testament does emphasize on this, and you've talked about this. Uh, so in terms of the fact that the church consists of people from all across the world, from all nations, all tribes and tongues, uh, why is there a na national territorial Israel coming into the picture? And how is it coming into the picture? Well, the reason you've got a national territorial role for Israel is because God made a promise to Israel originally about land that she would be able to occupy where she could live in peace with her God. That promise goes back to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And if you read those chapters in Genesis, really from chapter 12, even to the end of the book of Genesis, it's, it's repeated at various points. That yeah. land is even described with the boundaries named, etc. So there's a land in which Israel's going to function, which you will able, be able to live in peace and worship her God. Now, what also happens in the Old Testament, this is important, is, is that other nations are going to participate in this blessed time. So, for example, in Isaiah 19, we get the description of a highway that runs from Egypt, Assyria, who's an enemy yeah. at the time, to Assyria. And the, and the highway is going to run through Jerusalem, and they're all going to gather in Jerusalem and worship the same God. So it also anticipates a time when all the nations will participate, but the hub of that activity will be in Jerusalem where Jesus will rule and, uh, and run the kingdom. And the, the millennium is actually what we're talking about here. Uh, run the restored kingdom. And it isn't that it will be Israel vis-a-vis -vis the nations in opposition, but Israel will be the hub of this activity 
on behalf of all the nations. And so that's the picture that you get in, because ultimately the millennium and then the new heavens and the new earth are a time of peace. They're a time of shalom. They're a time in which people are properly relating to God. Now, there is a rebellion that's talked about at the end of the millennial period that shows right. even with the perfect environment, people will tend to stray. But the, but the whole point of the picture is, is that uh, ultimately the promise of God for Israel is also a promise at the same time for the world. Right. So the millennial kingdom is basically a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Yes. And it's also uh, it's also uh, a reflection of the fact that God keeps his promises to those he originally gave those promises to. Even as there are people added in to the blessing and the blessing expands, the original recipients of the promise also get what was promised. Great. So that shows the faithfulness of God, which is what the point of Romans exactly 9 right. to 11 is. Yeah, exactly Great. right. Dr. Bach, uh, switching gears here, uh, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom uh, when he was on earth, he specifically said no signs would accompany the time of the kingdom's appearance. For example, uh, you know this very well, just for the sake of our audience, Luke 17, 20 and 21. When the Pharisees came and asked him the question, when the kingdom of God would come, he said, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So what is he talking about there, Dr. Bach? Yeah, he's basically, let me give you a paraphrase, it's in your grass, which is a nice way of saying it's in your face, okay, it's me, okay, so um, uh, the idea here, you know, sometimes that translation gets read in English as the kingdom of God is within you, but he's not going to say that to Pharisees, right. uh, they are not responding, there's nothing going on inside of them that connects to the kingdom of God, so the point here is you don't have to look here and there and far and wide for it, because it's right here in front of your face, is mm -hmm. basically what he's saying. And so, the, you know, when you see Jesus, you see the kingdom of God. It's like when Simeon was holding the baby Jesus right. in Luke 2 and said, you know, behold, I see your salvation. Well, how can he say that? He can say that because he's seeing Jesus and Jesus brings the salvation of God. Right. So uh, when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry in person of Jesus was seen the kingdom and in his miracles, you could see the effects and the power of the kingdom right exactly right and the authority that jesus possessed over all aspects of the creation which shows that he's qualified to bring the deliverance that we're talking about great so dr bock on the other hand jesus also did indicate that general signs exist in the age that one should keep watching so this is his oliver discourse that you've written a lot on so what is the difference there dr bock well of course as we've said what jesus did is he split the kingdom program into two pieces there's the suffering now and the ministry that he has there's the intervening time which waits for the consummation the consummation is when the vindication is going to come the consummation is when he's going to show his power consummation is going to be when he when he performs his role as judge and vindic as judge of unrighteousness and the vindicator of the righteous so that's yet to come so that's what the olivet discourse was about uh the destruction of the temple in ad 70 was a sneak preview of the kind of power and judgment that would come uh, for disobedience that was put on Israel to, to show that she had been unfaithful 
But that wasn't the last act. That was just kind right. of like a down payment on what was to come. So the Olivet Discourse deals with two events at once, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which is a picture of the kind of chaos into which Jesus will come and deliver people at the end. And so this is what we call uh, a pattern prophecy, what sometimes is called typology. Pattern prophecy means right. there's an event in the short term that mirrors what the end is going to be like. Just like in the day of the Lord of the Old Testament, a locust plague shows the picture of judgment. And so you lay those two events on top of each other and one pictures and anticipates what will ultimately be the consummative event. And that's what's going on in the Olivet Discourse. That's why the Olivet Discourse gets so discussed among Christians. Well, are we talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Or are we talking about the end? To which the answer is yes. We're talking about all of it, both the front end and the back end. And also the signs that exist in this age as well. That's right. Well, the signs that exist in this, there's a very interesting part of the Olivet Discourse in which, in and this is only made clear in Luke, in which there are a series of descriptions about things that are going to happen, false messiahs, uh, wars and rumors of wars, all kinds of natural chaos, uh, divisions. And then Luke only says this, but before these things, this is going to happen. And it's the persecution of the people who believe. So, you know, people read that that discourse and they think, oh, it's just running chronologically in sequence. No, 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 no. It runs chronologically in sequence and then it jumps. It hits the rewind button and comes back before those things described and says, and this is going to happen before that stuff. And that stuff's not the end. And so the stuff before that's not the end either. Okay. But they're all indications of what's coming down the road before we get to the end. And that's the way that speech unfolds. Right. Wonderful. So Dr. Bach will have a special podcast on the Oliver Discourse alone. When you come to India here, we'll have it okay. in person. Okay, that sounds Wonder great. Great. So uh, Dr. Bach, uh, when we look at various things that Jesus said about the kingdom of God, for example, he said, uh, it doesn't appear with any signs. But on the other hand, we just discussed that there are general signs that we should watch out for. Do you describe these things as different phases of the kingdom? Uh not, I mean, the, the problem here is, is that all those indicators are going to take place across the fullness of time that we find ourselves in. So, um, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant to mm -hmm. say, you know, it comes at this point, you know, down the road in the future, or it came at this point in the past, because it's kind of happening all the way through, if you will. I mean, the persecution of the church hasn't stopped. Um, the, um, uh, the idea that there are messianic claimants hasn't particularly stopped. The chaos of the world certainly hasn't stopped. Uh, the natural disruption in the creation hasn't stopped. I mean, my goodness, we're in the midst of COVID right now. So, um, so, so none of that has stopped. So it, so that's ongoing. Um, and then there comes a time in which God, God says, enough. Well, actually there's a, there is a, and this isn't so much in the Olivet Discourses. Again, it's something that Revelation shows. There's a, a period of really intense persecution and rejection of those who believe. Uh, right. what, what becomes named the Great Tribulation, a part of a seven-year period that comes before Jesus physically comes back to the earth. Um, when we're in the midst of that, uh, then you'll know it's very, very close.
Right. So and of course, Rock then there's discussion about where the church is in the midst of that. That's a whole other conversation, probably a whole other separate podcast. Right. Uh, so, Dr. Buck, uh, my question here was uh, uh, just, just for the sake of our audience. When Jesus was on this earth, uh, the kingdom was seen in his person, right? And, uh, right. and he, when, he, when he ascended into heaven, uh, you see the mystery form of the kingdom, Matthew 13, and all those parables and all that. So, uh, uh, so you're saying that we cannot call them as different phases. It's just one long kingdom period. Well, I mean, there is the phase of the inauguration, and then there's the in-between time, and then there's the consummation. Those are the those are the phases, and we're obviously okay. we're in the in-between time now. But right. the the really important thing is remember that the kingdom of God is about the rule of God. So how does God right. rule? Well, He rules through His presence in us, both individually and corporately. So the presence of the rule of God in the kingdom phase that has come since the inauguration. And will be present until the end, until he returns and beyond, is the presence of the Spirit within us. That's how God expresses his rule and his presence. And then that enables us. Uh, the, the presence of the Spirit of God is about enablement. It's about power. But power not in a hierarchical sense, people against people. Power in the sense of enablement, a capability that you wouldn't have that, uh, otherwise. I tell people this is a crass illustration, but it's like a battery. Okay? You put a battery in something that needs a battery, and it runs. But if you pull the battery out, you can't do anything with it. So the Spirit is like a battery operating within us, giving us the enablement and the power and the capability to do the things God calls us to do and be, which is why the indwelling work of the Spirit is such an important part of the new life. Now, I'm distinguishing that from the discussion that happens in the church about charismatic gifts. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm right. talking about is the indwelling presence of the Spirit that marks us out as the child of God and that seals us for the day of redemption, that says we're right. God's and that God is occupying us and has identified us as his children, which, of course, we receive when we believe. That's not something that, get, that you get later. Right. Uh, Dr. Bock, we mentioned the mystery form of the kingdom. Would you please talk to us a little about it for about a couple of minutes? Well, the mystery form is this pulling apart of the two parts of the of the one thing into two parts with what happens in between. So, for example, one of the parables talks about the kingdom starting off small and mm -hmm. eventually being comprehensive. It's like it's like seed. a pinch of leaven. Well, mustard seed is when going into a tree. That's one picture. The other is a pinch of leaven that eventually covers the whole loaf. But they're both right. saying the same thing. Starts out small, ends up big. That's different than what people thought. People thought, oh, when the kingdom comes, it's going to be big from the start. So a mystery is something that is revealed that gives more detail than you knew before it was revealed. So it's, it's a disclosure, if you will. And, uh, and so Jesus taught in these kingdom parables this idea uh, of, of the smallness to the largest, the idea that the, that the kingdom of God and the claim of the kingdom of God would be mixed with good and bad until the end. And then in the, in the end, Jesus is going to sort it out. That's the fishnet catch of the good and bad fish. So there are a, a variety of the wheat and the tares is making the same right. point, that parable. So there, and, and then there's a, another parable that talks about the person who bought the land and he found things old and new there. Well, there are some things that were promised in the Old Testament. There are some things being told that weren't revealed in the Old Testament that make up the totality of the picture of the kingdom of God. Right. So, Dr. Bach, um, 
when you talk about the mystery form of the kingdom, uh, is Jesus there talking about this current world being remade in one sense? Um, n- not really. Um, we never see the church being responsible for the remaking of the world. Mm-hmm. Only Jesus is responsible for the remaking of the world at, when he comes back. What we do is we represent the presence of God in the midst of the world and as a community into which you invite people to participate and receive something they cannot receive from the world. Right. Okay, only God can give it. And so so the, the church does not remake the world. The church is always, it's an ambassador for the kingdom of God. It is representation of a citizenship from heaven. And it is an exile in a foreign land. That's the way we should see the current form of the kingdom in the church. It's always, it's always asking people to come out of the world and into the community that is the people of God. Great. So having said that, uh, the kingdom is both present and future as well. Correct. That's, that's the already, not yet. It's already here. The forgiveness is offered. The gift of the spirit and new life is offered. The beginning of new life takes place. But the consummation, the absolute defeat of evil and the presence of established and total shalom, that's yet to come. Great. Right. So, uh, Dr. Bock, just in one sentence as a summary, because this is a question that gets asked a lot. uh, What is the connection between the kingdom and the church? In one sentence, please. The kingdom's bigger than the church. The church is one phase of the kingdom's presence. It is the way I like to say it, and I'm going to bring Israel into the picture. Israel was the time of promise. God made covenant commitments that involved the promise. And the promise was of a Messiah, Messiah, ultimately, when you put all the covenants together, of a Messiah who would deliver God's people and who would indwell them so that they could be the people of God. That's That's the whole of the promise. And, of course, when God indwells you, you have life. And that's, that's, that's the point of that. The church is the community of God with the Messiah having come and made provision for that new life. But he's not actually present on the earth. You know, the church is called the body of Christ. You know, why would it be called the body of Christ? Well, it's called the body of Christ because Christ isn't visibly, physically present. And so the way you see the presence of Christ in the world is by the, at least theoretically, the way his community is supposed to function. They're supposed to represent his presence. In the millennium to come, okay, that will no longer be the case. Jesus will be physically visible and we will see him. That's the kingdom to come, just like now is the kingdom already present. So the kingdom in one sense is bigger than the church. Okay. Um, And when he comes back, he will be physically present. My joke is no one will debate who the Pope is when Jesus comes back. Okay. Right. It'll be obvious who, who runs the people of God and he will be physically present in a way that he isn't now. We'll still have the spirit of God, but we'll be able to relate to him in a much more direct way than we do now. And that will continue for eternity. Great. That's wonderful. So that was a very, very compelling and thought provoking conversation. Dr. Bock. thank you for taking uh, time out of your extremely busy schedule. I know you've been very, very busy. I, I follow your schedule once in a while. You've been busy, but you've taken time for us. Thank you so much. Uh, the Lord bless your ministry. Uh, would you want to say something in closing? 
I'm glad to do it. Only I didn't give you that summary in one sentence. I, just, I apologize for that. I should have given you, you asked for one sentence and I gave you a few paragraphs, but, uh, but so it's hard to do. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the short sentence is that uh, the church is a part of the kingdom program. It's not the whole of the kingdom program. And the church invites people to come into the kingdom as well, right? Exactly right. When uh, the church is a part of the kingdom program, uh, it's at the front end of the kingdom program, and you're inviting people to come into experiencing the direct presence and rule of God, because the forgiveness that is required to participate in that is something that God offers when we say we need it. He washes us clean. He gives us his spirit. And he puts us in relationship with him. That is the good news to the gospel. Forgiveness of sins plus the spirit of God equals new life. Great. On that, uh, on that note of good news, we want to thank Dr. Bob for spending this time with us. And also, I want to thank our audience for watching this Truth and Life podcast, where we discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life podcast, brought to you by Truth and Life Academy.